0: So this afternoon, I wanted to switch gears just a little bit and bring in another set of practices that can really help the heart-mind stay in balance. And that's the set of practices known as the four Brahma-Viharas, these four skillful qualities of heart and mind that we can cultivate through specific meditation practices being metta or kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And as I think most of you know, metta is the first of these four foundational practices. And to this term, Brahma vihara is the umbrella term for all four of them. And it's a little bit of a strange term. It's a little bit difficult to translate into English. But it's usually translated as something like heavenly abodes or divine abidings or sublime states, sometimes the four immeasurables. And these states are boundless. They're without boundaries. They can be extended infinitely to include all beings. And cultivating them is a very direct way to experience happiness. Deep happiness, not the kind of happiness that comes from eating a bowl of ice cream or having a bowl of trifle or whatever, but a very deep internal happiness. And as I've been emphasizing through this retreat in making this distinction between false refuge and true refuge, one of the ways we can understand that teaching is in terms of where are we looking for our happiness Where are we getting happiness? And when we look carefully, what we often see is that sometimes we're getting it in the wrong places. Again, in terms of trying to manipulate the external world out there to give us what we want. And you can probably see this if you look back over the course of your life. There might have been different stages in your life where there was something or someone who you thought was really going to do it for you. Maybe when you were a teenager you thought, if I could just leave home, then I'm going to be happy. And then you leave home and it's like, if I can just get a job, then I'll be happy. And then you get a job. If I could just get a better job, then I'd be happy. And you get a better job. If I could just find a partner, then I'll be happy. And you get a partner. If I could just find a better partner, then I'll be happy. And so it goes. If I could just retire, if I could just get a dream home, if I could just go on a round-the-world trip, there's always something that we're grasping after, clinging to, that we think is going to give us happiness, more money, more status, more fame, and so on. And those things, again, in and of themselves are not bad. So it's not like we should all go and live in a cave. But what we're asking you to do is look at how you're relating to them, if you're grasping after them and assuming that they're going to give you lasting happiness, then we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. So unless we have some inner awareness, some mental training, we tend to be at the mercy of life's inevitable ups and downs. And this mental training is part of what the Brahmaviharas are offering us. Everything that we say and do starts with a thought or a mental intention. So if we want to speak and act in ways that are going to bring us more happiness, we need to know what's going on in the mind, what's the motivation that those things are emerging from. So many of you are familiar with the opening lines of the Dhammapada that I often like to quote, because it shows the importance of our mental attitude so clearly. So in the very first lines attributed to the Buddha, it says, We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind, and trouble will follow you, as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. So we are what we think. With our thoughts we make the world. And we've had little tastes of that in the previous two days where I invited you to put your attention in certain directions. And you can see how that conditions the mind. For example, when I invited you to look at tension in the body, probably had an effect on the mind and vice versa. When I invited you to look at ease in the body or the mind, likewise when I invited you to go outside and really connect with the elements, I'm pretty sure that had an effect on the mind too. Is that true? So where we put our attention and what we do with the mind directly shapes our experience. So if we want more happiness, we need to train our hearts and minds to incline in that direction. And this is where the Brahma Vihara qualities come in. And they're usually presented as four different qualities of mind that we train in separately, but in actual reality they powerfully strengthen and support each other. And I think of them as being like the four strands of a four-ply piece of rope. Together, they have much more strength than a single strand. But somewhat unfortunately, meta seems to get by far the most attention. And it's true that meta is the foundation of these qualities, but often it's presented as a kind of a shorthand for all four of them, and we don't really get to hear about the others so much. So I just want to give you a little bit of an overview of them, because at different times, depending on different life circumstances, metta is not always the most appropriate response. Nevertheless, metta is the foundation of these practices. And then when this attitude of goodwill, of kindness or friendliness turns towards pain or suffering, it flowers as compassion, there's a direct connection between compassion and suffering and meeting that suffering with an attitude of kindness. Likewise, when metta kindness turns towards what's going well, it flowers as appreciative joy, mudita. And then when compassion and appreciative joy are perfectly in balance, we get equanimity or upeka, the heart mind that is free of wanting free of not wanting, simply steady, stable, at ease. So I will today start by offering a a short guided meditation on metta, but just a little bit of context before we go there. This word metta is often in the West translated as loving-kindness. But in many ways, that's not such an accurate or helpful translation because in English, the word loving kindness can sound a bit sort of wishy-washy or sentimental. And the loving part, you know, in English, again, this word love covers such a huge range of different um, meanings. So we can talk about loving ice cream, for example, fairly banal kind of love. Or we have romantic love that we see in cheesy movies and hear in songs and so on. It's not that kind of love is usually very exclusive. It's usually highly emotional. It's usually highly unstable and impermanent. So in many ways that kind of love is the opposite of what we're cultivating here with meta. So for myself, I prefer either to not translate the word and let you put your own meaning into it that's in the terrain of kindness, or just think of it as simple kindness. In fact, in some of the suttas, metta is translated as non-ill will. So if we can get to non-ill will, that's great. It's not like we have to dissolve ourselves into oceanic bliss states of, Uh, loving kindness so even his holiness the Dalai Lama said my religion is very simple my religion is kindness and it sounds very simple but as I think we all know in actual practice to be cultivating kindness in every situation we find ourselves in is quite a high bar There's one other aspect of these teachings that I'd like to just briefly touch into. In a way, they act as an antidote to the mind when it has got caught in different afflictive states. So, for example, very direct relationship between ill will and goodwill, between anger and metta or kindness, So when, if we have got caught in some kind of afflictive state of aversion, irritation and so on, metta can be a very beneficial antidote. And we've probably all had the experience that when the mind does get caught, when we do cling or identify with some particular afflictive state, what happens? Often, a whole pile of other afflictive states jump on board for the party and we find ourselves in what's classically known as a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> so it's like the mind gets tangled and tormented and that clinging and grasping, everything else comes in and we get completely lost. The other, the opposite is also true, that when the heart-mind is abiding in these skillful states, it becomes smooth and resilient. And it's much harder for those normally little twinges of afflictive states to kind of get their hooks into us. So these Brahma also act as preventatives. They act as kind of boosters to our emotional immune system. So I think of them as being a bit like vitamin C. If we take a dose of metta or compassion or appreciative joy or equanimity every day, we're making our heart-minds resilient and less susceptible to the afflictive states. So how do we actually do these as a practice? Even though the Buddha stressed the importance of these states so often in his teachings, he didn't give a whole lot of instruction on how to actually do them. And in the one main text, the instruction is, quote, to abide with the heart filled with loving kindness and then radiate this kindness outwards to the north, the south, the east, the west, above, below, and all around to cover the entire world. Pretty simple. But I think for most people, starting with a heart imbued with kindness is a bit of a leap. And so perhaps for that reason, later on in the tradition, after the lifetime of the Buddha, several hundred years later, the manual of the Vasudhi developed this technique of reciting phrases. And that's generally how Metta and the other Brahma have been taught in the West by people like. Tara Brach and Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, and so on. And with this method, we bring to mind a sequence of different people and we silently recite phrases of well-wishing or compassion and so on to each person. And the benefit of that is because we're using words, sometimes for some people it can be easier to keep the mind focused. There's something for the attention to land on. But the downside also is for some people it can take them into their intellects and they feel a bit disconnected. So in the instructions today I'll mix up a little bit, sometimes tuning into the energy of kindness, sometimes using the phrases. And I really encourage you in your own practice to just explore and experiment and find what works for you. Because one of the aspects of these practices that I appreciate is that you really can't do them wrong. I haven't yet met somebody who accidentally developed too much meta. So you can try and prove me wrong, but you know, give yourself permission to be creative, to visualize, to do whatever works for you to get you in that terrain. So in the instructions today, I'm going to work with the category traditionally known as the benefactor. And just in the traditional sequence, The sequence of people we work with we're supposed to start with where the meta comes most easily and naturally and then progress to slightly more challenging people until eventually we're working with the person we have difficulties with. And the analogy for this is sometimes like a waterfall with a series of rock pools. So the water goes over the cliff and it fills the first basin. And when that first basin of the easy person is full, then the water, the meta naturally spills over and fills the next basin. And then that fills and so on. So there's this natural organic flowing quality to it. So in the Vasudhi Magha, we traditionally start with ourselves because that was assumed to be the easy person. But for many people these days, that's not the case. So today I'll be starting with the benefactor. And in this context, the benefactor Means any person that you feel a sense of warmth, connection, or appreciation for. It could be somebody who's helped you or supported you, being a mentor or a teacher. Could be a kindly relative, perhaps a favorite aunt or uncle or grandparent. Could be a small child, a niece or nephew or grandchild. Could even be a pet. Doesn't matter who you classify as the benefactor. So much as they, you just have that flicker of warmth when you think of them. And a f- hopefully a fairly straightforward uh, interaction with them. So, one last thing. Sometimes when people are invited to cultivate kindness, the inner two year old goes, no way, <laughs> and gets very rebellious, uh, even angry or shut down or we get stage fright, so there can be different kinds of reactions. So one key is to have meta to the non meta And if you notice some kind of reaction, just allow it to be there. Don't struggle, don't fight it, don't feed it, but just know, okay, inner two-year-old is like this, or feeling blank right now is like this. It's okay What we're doing here is cultivating the intention of kindness. Whether or not we get an actual feeling or an emotion is much less relevant. Because if we're doing it to try and get a certain feeling, then it's not unconditional. We've got an agenda for it. And often that pushing to try and make some kind of emotion happen is totally counterproductive. So even if all you did was sit here for the next 15 minutes and dry, mechanically recited these phrases, that's fine. On some level, you're still cultivating intention. You're still planting seeds. And at some point, they might flower. So try to not have any sort of pressure to perform. And as we've been doing with everything else, just explore, see what you can find to enjoy. Okay.